This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And good morning. Good Sunday morning to you all. It's uh, 10am on RRR in Melbourne. That's radiotherapy time. And it means your prescription with your RRR subscription. I'm Panel Beater. I'm far from alone in the studio. My co-host, I'm joined by Dr Sharma and Hawkeye. Very good morning to you, Dr Sharma. Morning, morning. Doing well? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sunday morning. Can't beat it. Uh, Hawkeye, good morning. Yeah, is it? Well, we're dealing with a bit of trauma, aren't we? Uh, look, it's, it's trauma in a parallel universe. I'm a Melbourne supporter and my beloved boys... Uh, didn't really turn up yesterday. It's made me a bit sad. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm a Richmond supporter. So I've had my day in the sun. 2017, it seems. Now we're all done. Yeah, um, I want some sun. <laughs> yeah, we'll get over it. Get over it. And um, we were looking forward to having Perry Partum, um, but she was really croaky on the phone this morning. Sore throat. Decided not to infect us as well. And um, we were looking out to uh, to have her in here. Um, but we'll make do, won't we, gentlemen? Oh yeah. We'll do our best. Um, Dr. Sharma, you've got some news coming up. Um, Hawkeye, you've got a guest coming in. What's all that about? Oh, look, uh, we've got a really exciting morning. Um, we've, got a, we've got a guest uh, talking burnout. We've got a, some, uh, some, an actor and a playwright talking uh, who, are, who are just on fire. Um, so this is a you know, pretty exciting morning. Yeah, who's who's your guest? Uh, I've got Eric Levy, uh, a uh, Eric Levy, an ENT surgeon, Melbourne paediatric ENT surgeon, who uh, who's uh, a surgeon who cares, uh, which is you know considered considered a bit of an outlier, really. This is a surgeon who's become quite an authority uh, and a spokesperson on the topic of physician well-being, uh, talking about. Uh, Talking about doctors who are exhausted and cynical <laughs> and have you know have lost uh, have lost a sense of direction. Say it isn't true. Um, yeah. Well, look, I, I think um, you know I it's uh, unusual for me to be on the serious side of a of a topic, but um, but you know uh, there's increasing evidence that uh, that something's affecting a whole lot of doctors, and uh, it's actually impacting on patient care. And that's uh, that's something that absolutely all of us, I think, need to need to be concerned about. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and as you alluded to, I've got uh, Lucy Moore and Deborah Lawrence lined up who are talking about their Fringe Festival show, Right Hard and Clear What Hurts. That's going to be a, a cracking conversation. But before we get to all of that, let's set ourselves up for a bit of news. Doctor, doctor. Yes, welcome back. Dr. Sharma, what's caught your eye during the week? The Asprey trial. Yeah, it's a really well-named trial. So it's a trial that was uh, used to determine the use of aspirin. And as any GP knows, it's one of those medications taken so religiously. You know, a lot of patients have been taking it for decades on end. It's just kind of one uh, a day. And uh, over time, there's been a, a bit of a shift in terms of who might find it useful and might not find it useful. Well, the Asprey trial set out to answer a question. Uh, do elderly people who are otherwise healthy benefit from taking this medication? 
And this is really cool to me because I happen to see a fair few elderly people who happen to be very, very uh, healthy, perhaps just a function of where I'm practicing medica- uh, medicine you know, demographically. And it's, uh, generally speaking, pretty hard to <laughs> convince anyone to stray away from their aspirin. Well, what they did here was they looked at several thousand uh, patients in Australia and US and they split them into two groups, you know, um, uh, half of whom took aspirin, the other half did not, to see if there was any benefit. What was interesting here is that this is a really old medication that's been fairly well studied. And the pres- the thing I think I, they were probably assumed they would it's, find was... Just to, sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah. how old is it? No, it's obviously generic, so it means it's over 50 years old. Yeah, uh, look, I, I'm going to be honest and say I don't know how old. Older than me, and that's what I'm sure. <laughs> okay. it's, it's just one of those things that's, that's kind of been there in the background of medi- uh, medicine so much. Like you just, you, you almost kind of, uh, you, you, you assume it just works as, as well as people believe it does. Um, and the, I think the presumption has been over the last few years that the benefits kind of outweigh the, the, the risks in some people and the risks outweigh the benefits in other people. Yet this study, I think the surprise it really threw up was for elderly people who are otherwise healthy. It wasn't a case of the, benef- the harms outweighing the risks. There really was no benefit at all. Now, wow. now when, we, when I'm saying healthy elderly people, healthy elderly people rather, who I'm speaking about are people who've never had a heart attack before don't have a lot of other cardiovascular diseases like strokes, etc. And uh, and when I look at my patient population, there is a huge subset of people who are just on it because they were told it was, quote-unquote, good for the heart. And now we've got some fairly convincing answers to say, look, it's probably not doing you, much, not doing you any good at all. Just, just for clarification, so when you say uh, good for the heart, my understanding, and I could be very wrong, my understanding that the what aspirin did was it thinned the blood a bit, so it just made blood moving through the heart a little bit better. Is that what you mean by good for the heart? Well, yeah, the idea being that when people have a heart attack or a stroke, what's essentially going on is that the blood is forming some sort of clot together. So if you can thin it out so the clot it's less likely to form, you're fine. And the reality is that it is effective for people who I think, shown that propensity towards forming that clot through either having a heart attack in the past or having a stroke in the past, uh, one of those uh, things. But uh, for people who otherwise have not, even if they're quite elderly, there's just no benefit. What was the methodological difference? Like, if for so long we'd been moving with confidence this, this was a good thing, what changed methodologically that revealed these different results? That's a really good question and I think all it was a matter of was isolating a very specific population. So, for example, we've studied aspirin in elderly people. We've studied aspirin in people who've got high or medium or low cardiovascular risk. What we haven't done is actually looking at an elderly population who does not have those risk factors. So really kind of isolating that population is what's given us that clarity. And there's a lot of patients in that category and uh, now, of course, the scientific challenge is kind of over. Now begins, I think, the conversational challenge with patients in terms of de-prescribing, taking them off these things that we've been on for 20, 30 years. So I, I look forward to those conversations this week. So it's actually a really um, really good example of how, uh, how interventions um, that are shown to be effective as secondary prevention, that is that they, they, prevent, uh, they prevent further episodes or progression of a problem that already exists, uh, don't necessarily translate to be effective primary prevention mm-hmm. and this is this is a really important uh, message I think uh, across the board because you see it you know certainly half the diet fads half the uh, half the you know superfood concepts are based on this idea that you know that uh, a small piece of knowledge about the impact of 
something, anything, uh, can be translated all the way back to healthy people, that it adds to health. And I think that we've, we're actually not very good at adding to the health of healthy, of healthy people. Uh, in general, there are lots of medicines uh, for sickness or, uh, or for people at risk of sickness, yeah. but we're not great at making healthy people healthier. And I'm talking, about, talking here about um, uh, uh, medicines in particular. Could that possibly, and I'm you know, just putting it out there, could it possibly be because there's less money to be made in making healthy people healthier than sick people healthy? Well, I don't know that there's less money. I think, uh, I think the, the purveyors of, uh, of certain uh, kinds of tea or seeds or, uh, or spices that, that, make it, that make it into billions of uh, coffees and the like every day In fact, I uh, think would disagree. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what a lot of the wellness industry is based upon. How do you sell medicine to well people? But that's and not medicine, is it? Well, they sure. I mean, they they it's medicine by I'm thinking you know, pharmaceuticals. Name. Right, right, right. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Well, no, I, I I take a point there. Of course, it's it's of course in their interest to have it as widely prescribed kind of as possible. Yeah. Of course, um, but you know, but they, it, hence the the stress on de-prescribing amongst doctors. So, Doctor Sharma, just before we wrap on that, you you were pointing out and making a clear point that some people have been taking these low dose aspirin daily for a long, long time and all sorts of things are going to be happening for those people who are now meeting their GPs and the GPs are saying, newsflash, you don't need to be taking it. Aren't you happy about that because you don't spend the money, etc., etc.? Do you reckon some GPs will take the view, well, maybe we'll do a, you know, just if they think it's good for them, let them keep taking it or do you think GPs will be quite strident saying, no, the information is really clear, um, get off it? Uh, that's... It depends so much on the GP, but I dare say, especially for some of those patients who've been taking for decades, yeah, the former. I, I think it's uh, it's a likely that a lot of GPs will let you know, kind of sleeping dogs lie and yeah. and let it go. Which is, of course, you know, always that eternal argument about you know, do we do we kind of rock the boat and be a bit more confrontational and or, or just uh, or respect patients' wishes even when they don't often align with evidence. So there's a big discussion in this in this area around the idea of de-implementation science, that when you actually... It's all very well to, to ask... Uh, so we're not very good at implementation science, and that's the idea of, of, uh, of how, do we translate, uh, the, how do we translate scientific findings into policy, into practice. But we're actually even worse at de-implementing. And that is, how do we, how do we translate uh, findings like this of something not working into practice and policy? I think the one thing going for this situation, for this example, is that my understanding is that there was, there was an association with increased bleeding in the, in the aspirin arm. And so, so you, have, you have an intervention that seems to increase risk uh, of one adverse outcome make no difference uh, in uh, in the area that you've uh, that it's intended to work in, and that might be might be a reason that as people get older, the likelihood of of falls and other things happening uh, it might be kind of the the crux, if you like, the um, the the mechanism for de implementing aspirin uh, for primary pref- uh, primary prevention. Interesting stuff, Hawkeye. Something caught your eye during the. Um Week. Yeah, look, I, I was a little bit reluctant to spend too much time talking about my sports trauma, um, <laughs> and part of that is part of that is it, it's um, I think it's you know it's 
what happened this week is that uh, AMA president uh, Tony Bartone, I think, came out and said uh, said very clearly that uh, on behalf of his profession, he was calling for um, he was calling for uh, uh, the uh, for families and children on Nauru to uh, be brought to Australia and um, uh, and that this uh, really rolling uh, humanitarian emergency uh, required urgent intervention and he was promptly slapped down I think by the uh, by the Prime Minister who said that um, that uh, he wouldn't put at risk any element of Australia's border protection policy and um, I have to be careful here because I, I struggle not to dehumanise those who would dehumanise this easily. And that um, that, that policy that, that our Prime Minister is describing is a policy that really relies on, on dehumanisation, relies on suffering. And a policy where the mechanism, the mechanism of the policy, the deterrent mechanism is that suffering, is just an incredibly moral uh, concept and and you don't need to uh, and the you know anyone anyone who's sitting at home and thinking you know uh, but people dying at sea you know it's it's actually that's not the equation the equation is that there's someone that there is a suffering child a suffering adult uh, who is being crushed yeah and that that's actually the intention of the policy in fact the policy might work better the worse the outcomes are for these individuals. That's that's an awful equation. It's an it's a, an immoral equation, really. No question. And I imagine for people like yourself, Dr. Sharma, you know, you, you're trained in looking after people, looking out for their best health interests and their well-being, right? Mm. So you're witnessing this story unfold, and you're, you know, doing you know a form of diagnosis. Wow, a child in detention for an extended period of time. Um, You've got nutrition issues, you've got mental health issues and so on and so forth. There there must be a real tension for yourselves. Absolutely. Um, The the current policy uh, around uh, children in detention centres, I mean, it runs contrary to every instinct that doctors have spent decades developing and also, you know, very likely had before we kind of got into this. And uh, it's it makes me quite proud. I think that the AMA is, is stepping up and uh, and right at the very top of our leadership. Uh, we're we're commenting on these matters, but uh, it's. Uh it's one of those funny topics where you know, doctors are a very diverse group of people with fairly diverse politics, and yet I see basically complete and utter consensus yeah. uh, amongst my colleagues uh, in terms of what the right thing to do is, which is to take them out of that environment. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't claim to be an immigration lawyer or an immigrant immigration policy expert, but it's very clear to me that um, that a, uh, a policy that results in uh, in uh, children. Giving up, and that's what that's what we're talking about. And this this concept of resignation syndrome is, you know, is a euphemism for uh, for a child who has been crushed. Yeah. And you know, if that's uh, if that's the answer, uh, then you know, then we are asking, we are absolutely asking the wrong question. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radio Therapy Triple R Sunday morning. It's Panel Beater with you, my co-hosts this morning, Hawkeye and Dr Sharma. And now we're joined in the studio by our very special guests. We've got with us um, uh, Lucy Moi and Deborah Lawrence talking to us about their Fringe Festival show that just started last night, I believe, right loud and clear about what hurts. A bit of a dark comedy, I'm told. Welcome. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> Dark. Let's just start with that. What, what, when I think we preconceive what dark comedy might be, but what's it look like for you guys? 
Lucy? Yeah, what does it look like? It's 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 pretty much just my sense of humour, I think. Ah. Um, and I, I say dark comedy so that if I offend people, it's uh, you know, it's okay. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it's it's sort of I, to me, it's always like a more honest form of comedy. You know, it's not kind of gags and that sort of thing. It's more like uh, my actual thoughts about the world that I guess you know, it, it, the absurdity of it all is is quite funny. I think. Um, and it's dark content. People laugh yeah, at quite dark yeah. content. Dark yeah, content. So mm. I'm told that some of the themes you touch on are death, love, loneliness, <laughs> and how Narcissus has become our generation's poster boy. <laughs> Sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Punchlines galore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a few light topics. <laughs> <Should> we, <laughs> let's uh, tick those off. So, well, <laughs> no, Hang on, there's some background to this. Where's, the, where's this play come from? To, to um, the writing and the and the realisation you had something you could run with in, a, yeah. in this form. I, I got the idea. I was actually seeing a therapist a few years back and I, I left one day and realised I'd kind of lied to her <laughs> <laughs> about most of what I'd said. And not big lies, but just kind of micro lies. Um, While you were sitting there talking to her? Or was yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I'm paying you to lie to you. Anyway, I kind of, yeah, got this idea about this, this young woman who goes to see a therapist and, and why does she lie? And obviously my lies were quite small compared to what they are in the show, but... Um, just got really interested in the way we narrativize our lives and, you know, because we do that to make sense of the story of our lives but also as a kind of self-delusion. Um, and so that that idea was what spurred me on to write it. Um, yeah. There's a... But there's a... For whatever those lies might be, there's a supreme honesty in recognising mm. that you have just been doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it, it was just a very strange experience because I'd never really done therapy before and... Um, you know, and I did find it helpful, but at the same time, I, I, I found my... Yeah, the reason I was lying was probably, you know, quite minute. Like, I wanted her to like me or, you know, I, I didn't want to sound as bad as I thought I sounded or something like that. But um, And also, I think, too, that um, suffering... All suffering's relative, depending on where yeah. you are. I mean, we've just yeah. been talking about the kids well, in refugee camps. Last Friday night was... <laughs> no, but, yes, comparison but it's, to it's refugee relative, camps. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think sometimes people go to therapy and they they feel that perhaps their issues are smaller than, you know, a Syrian refugees, they, they, whatever, they... They feel that they um, they don't deserve therapy for what could ostensibly be a minor problem in yeah. the terms of the world. Right. So you reckon there's kind of like a um, like so if you're in that therapeutic moment talking to your counsellor, mm. um, you feel like you're um, indulging. In a way, yeah. Because look, you know, we live in a first world country. We're in the, the lucky country, we're told, and I and I think we do become aware of that when you finally do have to meet a stranger and start talking about. I mean, your life could start to sound quite um, small and hollow to you. You've just reminded me of that um, <laughs> uh, that meme, the hashtag first world problems mm. that was going around there for a while. You know, people would complain about their Wi-Fi dropping out or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but it doesn't, it, that doesn't negate the necessity for therapy because there are, sure. there are people, and we, we cover this in the play too briefly, there are people who really do have problems that they can't do anything about because it's biochemical imbalance. Uh, and then, de- you know, f- further along the scale of the people who are just having, you know, they're having a bad hair day. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't mean to trivialise bad hair days, but, um, yeah, so it's, it's just the scale of suffering and what we perceive as what real suffering is. Yeah. Let's come to some of the themes in a minute, but did you, it occurs to me that maybe once you came to that realisation of, you know, the experience of saying something but realising that may not be the real story... Mm. Um, did then the playwriting become a form of therapy? 
Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I found it incredibly therapeutic. And especially because the nature of the show is is, is kind of, you know, honest and over-disclosing, it, it was really riveting to just say whatever I wanted because you're essentially watching a very intimate exchange. Sure. So you can kind of get away with being, you know, saying anything. That that was that was really therapeutic. <laughs> and also, uh, our because Lucy invited me to do this because I've known Lucy since she was a small child. And um, <laughs> so she invited me to do it. And I think the process of us working together because I'm not a therapist but I'm a, a mum <laughs> and you know an older woman an elder and I guess that was sort of like I mean I didn't feel like your therapist but I certainly <laughs> felt as though you were free to yeah, you know, yeah just just chat about anything have you invited your therapist no <laughs> no so so which, which I suppose raises the next question which was uh, uh, did you or when did you admit to the lie? Well, I didn't with her. I mean... Uh, She's still oblivious. <laughs> <laughs> you double down. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, um, it sounds like I lied a lot to my therapist. And I, and I did, but they were just micro lies. It wasn't like I was saying, oh, you know, I... I'm an ex-murderer. Yeah, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't commit this crime or anything. But it was... Uh, it, it was just the feeling like I wasn't, I wasn't being completely honest. But then I, it, it gets you thinking, like, how, how do you be completely honest? Like, even when you're telling the truth, the way you tell it and, and who you're telling, it, it deter- like, those factors determine so much, I think. It strikes me as actually a completely natural thing to do, that you're, you're, yeah. in, you're entering a situation where you are completely vulnerable, totally open, and, uh, and you're actually going there for the express purpose, if you like, of, uh, of reinforcing your sense of self and your sense of security. And... Uh, in doing that, I think you you are going to naturally protect your sense of self and sense of security, mm. um, and that that probably almost none of us are. Uh, if you were secure enough to walk down that path and tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, you probably don't need to be there. Yeah, true. Um, and and I don't know that any of us are really that secure uh, to to meet <laughs> to meet a stranger and enter and enter that level of uh, of trust and. Uh, uh, immediately. Well, yeah, yeah. That's right. If you've got trust issues, then to go and trust somebody then <laughs> yeah, is insecurity and so on. Um, tell us about the setup of the play. So there's just the two of you on stage. What, what's mm-hmm. going on for the audience? Uh, yeah, there is just – it's a therapist's uh, office. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we both sit down for the entire time except for a brief moment when we're both on our feet. Um, but apart from that, and I leave occasionally because I have a, a pet cat that I have to look after, <laughs> which becomes a <laughs> some reasons behind that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah, and we do – and it holds. It actually holds. You know, I've been in a lot of theatre where the director has asked you to keep moving or you do blocking or whatever because you have to – apparently you have to keep the audience engaged. <laughs> but the content of this is so compelling mm. because Lucy's such a clever, clever writer, if I can say that, Lucy. <laughs> there you um, go, Lucy. <laughs> that, yeah, it's just people were spellbound, weren't they? They were just listening and laughing in all the right spots and um, – and um, shouting with glee and clapping a lot at the end. Death, which was love, great. loneliness, and narcissism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they <laughs> loved it. Yeah, yeah. They lapped it up. <laughs> yeah. um, wh- wh- that aspect of you know you, the the media tells it, the media release you've um, given us the, the narcissist uh, has become our generation's poster boy. What, what's the link you're making there? Um, I, w- I was kind of exploring the way we use social media and how you know. It, I think maybe, oh no, that's not true. It's not a generational thing. But I, I, I've always felt incredibly uncomfortable um, with taking photos of myself and putting them online and justifying that. And I, I participate in it, but it, it's it's such a weird 
um, area for me and I kind of just got this idea about I just remember studying Narcissus in school and how he was just obsessed with his reflection and he ends up, he's in hell and he doesn't even realise it. So that was the kind of link I, I, I took that, you know, we're all looking at ourselves in our phone and, and wanting mm. other people to look at us and, and it's it doesn't feel healthy, <laughs> you know. As, as my character says, you're carrying hell around in your hand. Yeah, right. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's an obsession and it's becoming, narcissism has always been there as a, a diagnosable uh, condition um, you know, with arrested development of lack of empathy. So yeah. it's always been there, but it seems to have escalated in, you know, I, yeah, we, we hesitate to say since this generation. Has come back. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like the, the addiction, you, you can't deny the addiction to the phone. I see it in the classroom all day, every week. Yeah. I think there's an important distinction that you've just drawn, um, and that's between obsession and uh, and addiction. That a lot mm-hmm. of this is a lot of this is actually not uh, not a not a uh, a uh, choice. It's uh, it's actually something that, that I think we are being uh, we are being sold on, and uh, mm-hmm. and we are being um, uh, uh, drawn in in a way that uh, that most of us can't comprehend, mm-hmm. and yeah. with te- and with techniques that are. Are well refined and yeah. are fit for yeah. fit for the purpose. Unfortunately, pretty much of juicing us, yeah. and that that, we're, that our attention is being juiced, and yeah. um, and that it's uh, there's some degree of uh, of you know narcissism here, but that lake is pulling us. Mm. It's, we're not just yeah. looking at it. Exactly totally. right. It's the whole um, triggering the dopamine receptors. Yeah, mm. over and over and over to w- keep wanting it all the time. So. Mm. Just about coming to time, um, but while you were just talking about that and alluding to social media, and I'm thinking about the the lying to the therapist. Mm. You know, I'm rethinking what might frame the lying. It's actually a form of curation of totally. our lives, Absolutely. isn't it? So yeah, just yeah. in the way, way in social it. media, mm. where we're curating the lives mm. we want others to know, yeah. Yeah. even in this intimate situation with a therapist, we're curating how yeah. we want them to engage with us yeah. and totally. understand us. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the point a big point of the show yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and maybe it's this generation that's curious i wouldn't yeah what happened with therapists in the 1990s Don't yeah. it would have been very different yeah <laughs> it's um been a blast uh talking to you give us the details where can we find you when can we see it um so we'll be on at the Lith- 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 lithuanian <laughs> club uh in north melbourne errol street um in the loft and we're there 6 45 from tuesday to saturday and tonight we're there at 5 45 5 45 on sunday Mm-hmm. There were actually people waiting outside uh, when Lucy and Deborah were coming in that were cheering them. They wanted autographs at the door, <laughs> at, the, at the entrance to Triple R. So, so that awkward moment when people try to get into Triple R on the weekend uh, was, was just made even more awkward for them. Which are good, Hawkeye. Have you thought of going into PR? <laughs> there you go. Brilliant, guys. Um, we've been speaking with uh, Lucy Moir and Deborah Lawrence with their festival show, Rock, Fringe Festival show, Right Heart and clear about what hurts. Playing at the um, Fringe Hub, the Lithuanian Club, The Loft, 22 to 29 September, this afternoon show, again at 5.45. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for being in here, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolute (laughs) pleasure. Three, triple, ah. Welcome back. You're on Triple R with myself, panel beater, Dr. Sharma, and Hawkeye. Hawkeye's brought in a, another special guest for this morning. Hawkeye. Uh, thank you, panel beater. Um, so, look, I'm actually, uh, uh, I've been basking in the afterglow of another successful, uh, successful radiothon. Uh, it was a wonderful, just a wonderful couple of weeks. And thank you, everyone, for your support uh, for a wonderful radio station. Um, 
So uh, in that time, I did a little bit of reading and I just couldn't couldn't escape uh, the explosion of medical literature on the topic of physician burnout. Uh, and uh, and I've spent a little bit of time on Twitter being pulled into that lake that we were just discussing. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't avoid, uh, couldn't avoid the voice, the online voice of uh, Mr. Eric Levi, an ENT, a paediatric ENT surgeon uh, in Melbourne who's, uh, who's certainly part of the local conversation about uh, physician, doctor, well-being and, uh, and burnout. So uh, welcome, Eric. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Eric, I, I came across a podcast recently uh, on the uh, Royal Australian College of Surgery uh, of Surgeons um, uh, website uh, discussing this idea of burnout, um, and it struck me that that uh, concern for concern for one another and uh, and interest in well being, you know, is not not something that's typically associated with our with our surgical colleagues. <laughs> that's right. Um, and I thought thought we absolutely had to get you here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean. It's interesting, isn't it? There is that stereotype of a surgeon being an aloof, uh, far in the distance behind their masks and their surgical caps and everything else. But behind all of that, we're still human beings. And I think the topic of um, mental health burnout does really matter. And whatever affects your clinicians, your doctors, your surgeons, your GPs does affect you as patients currently or future patients. Absolutely. Um, so this, this concept of this concept of burnout, kind of, what is it, and where did, where, did, where did it come from? What's the idea? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. So you've already alluded to it. You mentioned that the explosion of studies around this area. So I'm going to start by defining or separating the idea between uh, the, the, the concept between burnout and mental health. So mental health, uh, de- depression, anxiety is uh, a, a, is uh, a psychiatric diagnosis of psychiatric condition, whereas burnout is a chronic workplace stress that is affecting the psychological indi- the psychology of the individual. Um, so the way we describe it is almost as if it is a long-term effect of a context of, of work uh, that puts a negative effect on the psychology of the person. So you can be burned out in one week and be fine the following week, depending on perhaps some of the circumstances around it. So these are two different things, and, and burnout is not a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, so therefore, when we start thinking about burnout and the context of burnout in the life of a doctor, surgeon, GP, physician, we need to think not just of the individual, but also of the context where that individual works. Um, And it's important to think that framing burnout and the solutions to burnout, we can't just target the individual practitioner. Um, It's not that more mindfulness, more resilience program, more video uh, uh, modules on on mindfulness and time management. Uh, That's just one part of the bigger picture. We need to start really thinking about the institutional approach. uh, Yeah, this this is exactly how it tends to get framed by a lot of people, uh, quite literally resilience training and and uh and i think i understand that people perhaps do have the best of intentions when they say these things and yet they don't realize they're really framing this debate around the individual not the system that allows this this burnout to flourish yeah correct uh so a lot of times the the word resilience training on mindfulness has become a a kind of a throw-in word Mm. to say you know the problem is not with the institution the problem is with the practitioner themselves now considering the fact that you know as the typical doctor would have gone through years of medical school training years of residency specialist training and we're talking about a 15 to 17 year journey between, you know, first year of medicine to becoming a specialist and doing all of that after hours work. Uh, it's, 
it's the, the whole training is, is is tough and there is a resilience built into mm. that having worked 60 hour 80 hour days and just to be told you need to be more resilient um, can be a bit of a slap uh, uh, on the face from that point of view it is important but it's not the only thing i i, I agreeing that uh, I think really for people involved in our health system and that's at every level from uh, from the people who are you know who are uh, often the people who are cooking meals for our patients the yes. people who are rolling them around hospitals uh, at every level of allied health nursing and through to uh, through to your medical staff uh, you're actually dealing with an unusually resilient group um, and and so I think I think that to have this very resilient group and then and then this sense that oh you know what you really need to do is more yoga mm. uh, I think you know it is quite rightly looked on as, as almost a little bit offensive. Mm. There's a whole lot of uh, other literature in a in a related field in the humanitarian space yes. um, that uses this word resilience quite a bit. And those who are critiquing it are, are pointing to we should ask who's suggesting resilience mm. who's promoting resilience and that'll tell us a lot and and then when we do answer it, that question for ourselves we might actually start to repronounce that word and it's resilience mm. so you're you're actually being asked to put up with what you've got and find yeah. another toolkit yeah yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's beautifully said. In uh, specifically in a, in a public hospital, you'll often get it in the form of emails from managers and HR, etc. And uh, yeah, the, again, the, the the purpose of, of these parties is not necessarily the well-being of doctors. So yeah, we, we really should be looking at where exactly this advice comes from. Indeed, and I think going back to that, the resilience is one part of the bigger picture. But if if the whole focus of the treatment or the solution is on the individual to actually um, be more resilient, I think we're missing a bigger picture. Uh, so amongst the amongst the recent literature, I think just a couple of things that are worth um, are worth focusing on. Um, this the definition of what burnout is. I think is is, a, is at the moment not a not a. Uh, a, a it's a moving, a moving target a little bit. Indeed. And there's a sense that something's wrong, um, but what it is uh, is unclear. And certainly a lot of the literature relies on a, uh, a scale, uh, the uh, Christine Maslach's uh, Maslach, uh, burnout inventory that was not designed for uh, to, to look at doctors in particular. Um, and it really has kind of three big domains. One is this idea of exhaustion or emotional exhaustion, um, and the second one is depersonalization, probably best understood in this context as cynicism, um, and uh, and then a sense of uh, decreased personal efficacy of not feeling that you're accomplishing what you want to accomplish. It strikes me that that in translating this to uh, in translating this to, to medicine, I wonder whether the whether this is a, a, a another way of expressing the kind of the result of the Whitehall studies and that's the the finding uh in in the in Michael Marmot's longitudinal study in the in the UK mm-hmm. that linked uh, linked poor health outcomes to uh, uh ultimately really to a, a sense of uh decreased control of destiny and um and that that's the that regardless of of what job you're performing a sense that you have no control of 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 where you're going is is a really uh, uh that being disempowered in that respect is is perhaps the the unifying factor and and so i wanted to just use that as a supposed introduction of something i've heard you talk about which is the burden of administrative tasks uh, mm-hmm. on on kind of daily life 
Yeah, thanks. It, it's it's it is a bigger picture, isn't it? So so when we talk about burnout, we talk about not just the health of the practitioner, but also the health of the in uh, the institution. So there's a bigger picture going on. And if you imagine that the data is quite clear that about half of doctors are actually burned out. If you go to any institution, any health institution, you realize that one in every two doctor or nurse or, or, or other practitioners are burned out. You realize the hospital is not functioning at great capacity. So burned out doctors are not good business because there's obviously potential for higher errors, potential for uh, a slower treatment, potential for over-treating or under-treating. So when we think about the burden of administrative or institutional uh, in- involvement, we also need to think about the fact that over the last 50 years, there's been a massive increase of uh, administrative uh, positions in a hospital. Uh, interesting uh, study looked at just the area or the map of an area of a building uh, back in the 1950s where the amount of clinical area versus the amount of administrative areas in a hospital and the amount of administrative areas as a plot of land and a footprint in a building has just grown massively <laughs> in every hospital in every institution and that's just worth thinking about from that point of view uh, knowing that you know there is a, a, a challenge there and again the bottom line is doctors don't work for administrators administrators don't work for doctors both administrators and doctors work for the patient and that's the big goal and yet that, it, that's kind of the issue, isn't it? It often doesn't feel like that when you are a doctor in that system. If there were just more administrators and they were doing their thing, it would be fine. And yet it feels like there's this directionality to, a, to the, 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 work, the admin work that doctors do. It's to please the administrators or to satisfy them. And you know, if it, it does create that sense of, you know, kind of uh, uh, that sense of that you are now doing something you didn't really kind of plan to do with your career, it just creates this uh, you, you feel like you're, you're just kind of languishing here, you don't really know what you're doing and particularly in the context of a long surgical training, you, know, you find yourself doing all these, uh, satisfying these parties you, you really never were passionate about it, it throws you out Indeed, it's very interesting, so we train our doctors through medical school to be good clinicians but they don't realise that when they come up and start working in a hospital practice, uh, a lot of the time is spent on administrative duties, on, on, on paperwork clerical stuff which are important but it has taken over a huge part of a typical day-to-day work of a clinician and then we're not preparing our doctors well enough for that work where there is a huge amount of um, administrative intrusions or or, or involvement uh, in our practice. To highlight a really stark example and one that I think really points out some of the the emotional dimension here Um, there will be resident doctors in Melbourne this week at hospitals who will arrive at work in the morning to find that there are patients who have been shifted to if you, the departure lounge, to the area to be transported uh, by, by ambulance if required home or waiting for family to pick them up. And that decision to move them from their bed to that area will not have been made by a doctor. Will not have been made by the doctor whose name is on the bed card, who's responsible for that patient. Will not have been made by a junior doctor working for that doctor. It will have been made by an administrator who will later in the day have another conversation with the same junior doctor saying, you know, shall we discharge this patient, this patient, this patient? And that that sense of where the cart is and where the horse is and what this system is actually there for, you know, gets lost a little bit. And the, the recognising as a doctor that there is a gulf between what you think you personally and your team is capable of and what you're actually delivering recognizing that gulf hurts yeah right and it it takes a lot to deal with that 
And so you're linking your, the dots you're joining are the, are the hurt and the experience of that moment um, with something that accumulates over time toward burnout. Absolutely. Yeah. There are, you know, 15... There's a recent study in JAMA in Journal of the American Medical Association suggesting that 15% of... Uh, of uh, second and third year doctors in the United States are uh, regret their career choice. Yeah. And that's, that's if you like, a, a more... It's not a completely concrete outcome, but it's a more solid outcome than some of these markers of, on, on burnout scales. You know, yeah. there are 15% saying, I'd, you know, if I'd known this, I would have done something different. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just throw into the mix, you know, similar rates for law and uh, for academia. Mm. Um, massive... <laughs> regret and uh, people leaving the profession at, a, at an awesome rate. And I think that's something that's common to all those professions is specifically in the junior stages of it, you, they're really made to f- make you feel like a bit of a cog uh, often in the machine rather than, than being someone who, who's driving it. And often the roles you're doing in those junior positions don't quite align with the values that brought you there in the first place. Absolutely. And that's been supported by evidence as well. More recent survey uh, in Medscape, 14,000 doctors or something to that effect, uh, basically shows that the top three reasons for burnout are all related to administrative, feeling like a cock in the in a wheel, uh, increasing computerizations or, or software, software-ization of, of the hospital care. So that's, that's, that is a challenge. And so therefore, where do we go from here? Where do we look forward to? And that's the challenge that we have as a, as a medical community to start thinking that you know we need to think of this as a bigger uh, a cultural change and institutional change rather than just resilience. There, there will be people listening though who will say you know welcome to the real world doctors this is uh, you know this is what we've all been dealing with forever you know we're all we've all you know I'm, I'm standing on a, on a factory production line I'm you know a cog in the wheel and you know this is this is uh, you know this is my rea- this has always been my reality I wonder you know I wonder if uh, you know, is is that all it is? Are we just complaining that we're now dealing with the, a universal experience? No, I, I, I think there is some universality to it, but I think what you guys are um, reminding us of, that this is a profession that's dealing with other humans and, and singularly dealing with other humans in their health and well-being. Um, so there are parallels in other uh, um, or is things that are serviceable as compare and contrast in other professions. But if you're in the caring professions, then if you're not well... The, the likelihood of you not doing your job to help other people. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, patients deserve to be looked after by fully engaged doctors, nurses, yeah. uh, physiotherapists, clinicians, uh, who are not, you know, spending their time being cynical and being totally exhausted, being feeling like just a simple cog in the wheel of a big institution. I was, I, I, just as I was <laughs> talking and thinking uh, about that, see if I could find another profession where there's some potential correlation it might be pilots and then when i'm when i'm thinking about pilots their routine health checks that they go through their routine mental health checks checks that they go through i'm assuming is not replicated in say surgeons for example well, sorry Matt, uh, push that push that analogy further and and you know if you if your doctor turns up exhausted uh, uh to the hospital the hospital closes yeah, you know, no no admissions for the next twelve hours. Uh, you know, we've we've timed out our doctors, and you know, while while there have been some, uh, while there certainly have been, uh, you know, there are now work hour regulations that didn't exist. Uh, there's there's no you know emotional state uh, uh, regulations. Um, that's right. Yeah. In fact, uh, that's the argument against this universality issue in that uh, doctors often have far worse 
uh, mental health outcomes compared to a lot of other professions. So, so it's it's not so much about kind of comp- even if we do get into the game of comparing professions, doctors are doing much poorer than a lot of others. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Uh, you're on Triple R. Uh, we're with Dr. Eric Levi, uh, Mr. Eric Levi, ENT surgeon uh, in Melbourne. We're talking uh, physician burnout, well-being, uh, and other good things. Um, Eric, we've, uh, we've, I think we like a good self-help book. It's about time uh, in this story to, to pivot a little bit. We've we've discussed kind of the scope of the problem, the impact of the problem. I think we've really got to we've really got to start talking solutions. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I'm very optimistic that there's been a, a really good uh, a momentum, and uh, we're reaching a tipping point where we, as a community, as a medical community, is beginning to you know get switched on to, around this. So, College of Surgeons, College of Anesthesia, College of General Practitioners, and many other colleges and institutions, hospital institutions, have really brought this up to the surface and discussed it. So, this is no longer a topic that is discussed in a secret uh, residence room. This is a topic that's now being discussed in the boardrooms, in the grand round meetings, and the and in a conference. So, and that's fantastic. And it's going to happen through a multi-level, multi-factorial, multi-approach uh, uh, changes. And what we talk about has to translate from just awareness to actual actions. So I'm seeing lots of great little responses from different hospitals and from different colleges with regards to trying to create a better environment for doctors to work in. Uh, so essentially, at the end of the day, this is not just focused on the individual, but on the systems as a whole. And also unofficially as well, there's a bit of a community feel towards uh, medicos from all over the globe. Uh, I'm speaking specifically about Twitter here. We're actually quite prolific. You've got uh, quite a following on Twitter and also you've been very very eloquent uh, in terms of uh, elucidating some of these issues Um, and it is actually just a lovely feel amongst clinicians about being kind to each other and to ourselves. Absolutely I think so. I think that we all understand that we just want to bring humanity back into healthcare this is not a a cold steel industry. This is a humanity back into healthcare where the doctors can be fully engaged and giving their best to deliver best care for the patient Uh, there is a very clear line now in the World Medical Association pledge of physicians to say that I will provide self-care so that I can provide excellent care for my patients. And I think that's where we're heading towards. And, and, and Twitter and social media is just a great connector. There's a lot of people in every department, in every hospital that has a keen interest in bringing that humanity back, increasing the support for our fellow doctors for the sake of patients, ultimately. Uh, look, I think that message is, is incredibly important. I hope it's a message that can be heard by those who need it most because burnout is, burnout is more than just this, you know, this, this rolling state of, you know, of unhappiness. It's actually a real risk factor for depression and for suicide. And, um, and so, you know, there are clearly resources out there. There's Lifeline, there's Beyond Blue that, uh, that you know, I, I would implore, you know, people use uh, if, uh, if they're uh, feeling, uh, feeling unwell. But, uh, and that Lifeline number is 131114, 13 but remember that your colleagues are also there. And, uh, and like Eric says, I think, uh, I think your colleagues are ready to listen and ready to support you. Is it, we spoke uh, on the show last week about Are You OK Day. Um, and is it the colleagues? I mean, colleagues are great at the photocopier asking, you know, how are you going? And, and they do that at various times throughout the year. But when you're talking about systems and institutions, 
where does that kind of behavior fit in do you think and i think this is a fantastic thing about cultural change and leadership so you're absolutely right it often starts around just the coffee tables and the coffee uh, coffee machines uh, but it the, the conversation has to be elevated and at the at the top down level from a, from a ceo of a hospital the chief medical officer of hospital we have to realize that these statistics uh, these things are not just affecting patients but affecting us directly as the practitioners and the individuals in the system yeah don't treat me badly and then ask are you okay yeah help me be okay yeah. indeed um we've uh, really raced through time um just before we go though so but can you can you just do that link are we supposed to be um who's who's on uh, team fix it like is it the health minister is that where we want to go well, I mean, if it you the education wanna, system even uh, in right back at the university training of, of, of people. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to dream big, yeah, of course, absolutely. It has to start all the way from all the top at, at, the, at the national, you know, kind of state level. Yeah. Uh, but oftentimes some of the little movements starts at the bottom end as well, so to say. Um, and, a, you know, we have to just permeate all through the hierarchies to say, look, this is something that's serious. The health of patients is important, but the health of doctors and nurses and clinicians is just as important. All right. Thank you, Dr. Levy. It's been fabulous having you on um, today talking to us about uh, burnout in the medical profession. Um, we had earlier on uh, Lucy Moir and Deborah Lawrence, big thanks to them and their show we were discussing was right hard and clear about what hurts. Um, big shout out to Dr. Perry Pardum, who's uh, doing it rough uh, throat wise. We hope she's feeling better. She had a great segment lined up uh, for us uh, talking about um, antidepressants in pregnancy. She says she'll hold that over and we can look forward to that um, another time. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.